Evolutionary.org presents Evolutionary Hardcore Podcast with your co-hosts, Steve from the American Underground and Mobster from the UK Iron Den. Get ready for the most hardcore and underground info in the industry. And here we go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6... Morning, everyone. Evolutionary Hardcore Radio coming your way. This is number 127. Today we're doing Sean Ray. Steve Smee here in the Mofsta joining me like always. What's up, man? It's cold, it's wet, and it's horrible, but we're cooking on gas when it comes to this podcast. So let's knock this one out of the ballpark, Steve. Yeah, this one's going to be a fun one. Uh, Sean Ray, definitely an interesting character. One of the most consistent and successful pro bodybuilders of his era. He's also an author. He's uh, had some cool digs. He's been a TV host on ESPN, which is a huge sports network. I'm sure you guys get, get them over there in, in, in England. And he's got his own documentary going. Nicknamed Giant Killer. Um, he was born in 1965. Peak stats, five foot five. And, uh, you know, so he's a shorter guy. Um, very lean, 225 pounds. You can imagine what that looks like. A two, lean 225 pounds on a five foot five frame that's a lot of muscle that is a lot of muscle on that tiny frame born in california genetic freak um just like a lot of bodybuilders we've talked about he excelled at sports football player he had a 98 yard run from scrimmage the longest run you could have a mobster in 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 american football is 99 yards so that means he took the ball from their own two yard line ran all the way across the field yeah with 11 people trying to tackle him um, so wow. that's an impressive. He was inducted in his high school sports hall of fame. That's how good of an athlete he was. Oddly enough, though, he did not pursue football. He pursued bodybuilding after high school. And he was a very, you know, he had the genetic talents to be an amazing bodybuilder. Just 18 years old, California Gold Cup winner. Next year, 1984, teenage Mr. California. So Right off the bat, he wanted to get his pro card. He took a full year away to sculpt his physique. And then at just 22 years old, he crushed everybody at the 1987 National Championships, and he won his pro card. In those days, it was much harder to get a pro card than it is today. Um, so that was really impressive for him to do that. And I like that he took a year off to you know get everything in order and then go after it. So competition highlights, guys, 1990 Pro Ironman champion. 1991 Arnold Classic champion, top three finishes and some of the toughest competitions of his era. Um, you know, he was the favorite going to some of his Mr. Olympia open competitions. He beat every competitor of his era except Dorian Yates and Lee Haney. So he would fall short of ever winning a Mr. Olympia. But, you know, as we've talked about on some of these other guys, just because you don't win a Mr. Olympia doesn't mean you're not a great bodybuilder. And he definitely was one of the greatest bodybuilders of his time. So uh, we can go through his Mr. Olympia finishes. He had uh, numerous top five finishes from 1990 to 2001, dominated the 90s. He was in 13th and 88. Then the next year, uh, two years later, he was in third in 1990, fifth in 91, fourth in 92, third in 93, Second in 94, that was the year he finished behind Dorian Yates. Fourth in 95, second in 96, again losing to Yates, who was dominating those years. 
third in 97. And then he finished in the top five every year until 2002. He was inducted in the IFBB Pro Bodybuilder Hall of Fame in 2007. So I'm going to bring in Mobster on this. Dominant guy during the 90s, never won the Mr. Olympia, but he, he definitely was impressive. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, a, this is a fella that if you wanted to change his nickname, you could call him Mr. Consistency. I don't think we've ever seen a photograph or video from that time. And, and he was very much of my time coming into the sport and being interested in the sport in 1980, where he was out of shape. There wasn't, there wasn't a photograph or a video where you could say oh, he's, he's not quite where he needs to be. It's just that I think his height was probably slightly against him. And in terms of his consistency, one of the statistics here, and I think you touched on it in your article, Steve, is that in 30 competitions, and I'm, I'm assuming these were pro-level competitions, but even if it was a combination of pro and amateur, it was only once outside of the top five. That, to me, is an, is an indication of consistency. So right there, I mean, yeah. The thing that's an interesting background for me, and we talked about this in the, in the pre-show, he has been mentored by, for, for some people, and some of you guys won't have heard of this fellow, but John Brown, a black bodybuilder called John Brown, who was a pro way back in the day, late 70s, early 80s. And he mentored several athletes, or people got to train with him or coached by him. And Sean had one of those um, ordeal by fires. You turn up and you train with me, we're going to do crazy shit. So he's one of those guys that took that, was able to deal with it, and was able to then sign up. He, he's done that to other people himself. He's had a few people that have come and trained with him at one time or another, and he's put them through it. But John was the kind of guy that had this great stage, stage presence, was a great poser. And my recollection of Sean is as a good poser as well. He, he is very, to say that this fellow is confident is an understatement. In fact, I'm gonna I'm gonna go so far. He's not necessarily a liked guy. This is kind of this is kind of thing because you can learn an enormous amount, and we'll touch on the stuff that you guys can learn from in terms of him as a professional athlete. But he's, he's an arrogant son of a bitch. He just comes across. He doesn't he doesn't say things to make people like him or be friendly he's one of those guys and 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 quite often it's 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 truthful and it needs to be said but he's he's kind of like not afraid to say it. he's done it in articles he's done it with other pros it's, it's not literally what we would call over here in the uk he's not shit stirring he's not doing this stuff just to get a reaction sometimes it's just it is what it is at one point i believe he was trying to be the uh, olympia athletes rep he was one of the guys that was supporting this idea that they should share some of the top prize money with the lower numbers. Um, on the other hand, he, he comes across a little bit selfish. So there's certain times he's done things for his own benefit in his own career. And of course, he's still a pundit. He's, he's, he says in uh, some of the video I watched yesterday that he's been asked to go to Japan uh, to, to MC certain competitions, doesn't speak a word of Japanese, so they're translating, but they want Sean there. He's uh, recently uh, been a pundit on the Olympia uh, live stream. So he's still involved. He's still reporting. He's still writing. I read one of his articles. It was actually just after the 2010 Olympia. He was a, a feature writer for some of the magazines. Probably one of the few bodybuilders that was probably actually writing his own stuff. So, yeah, he's definitely, guys, you can learn from this fellow as a professional athlete. He was a great jock at school as a professional athlete, how to be a professional tip top how to be a nice guy not so much steve 
you know, he's, he's not going to sit there and, and <laughs> say nice things and try to make himself, you know, get get lots of extra friends in that particular way that some some athletes do, and they don't like to to, to tell the truth or whatever. Yeah, Sean is definitely one of those guys. Yeah, you either like gonna, it's one of those guys. You either hate him or you love him. I was gonna say, you know, looking through his Instagram and his social media, you know, he doesn't seem that way compared to some of these other guys. So um, it must be something, you know, with his interviews mm. and with his it, something that makes makes him uh, get that reputation. But hey, you know, that's that's one of those things where you know a lot of people like that they like that cockiness in people i mean he's got almost a million uh, followers on his instagram um he does a lot of uh things in his instagram uh showing off um you know he likes to show off his dogs he likes to show off his body from from um from back in the day his peak form he likes to have pictures with other bodybuilders he's got pictures with his um family members he's got you know funny funny memes on there um so you know, he doesn't come off at all as cocky in his Instagram. It doesn't doesn't strike me that way compared to some of these other guys. So um, where, where where do you think that he comes off that way? Is it the way he interviews or, or what? I mean, I've got to think of a certain examples. This is the sort of guy that would, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example that would, that would really spell it out for you. So... Silly little story from yesterday, and this is again pre-show research. He talks about um, he's got daughters that are in show business now, and the best example, well, I think Dave Palumbo was trying to interview a particular athlete at one of the backstage, one of the interviews a couple of years ago, and in it you can actually see Peter McGough shoving Dave back where they pre-arranged to talk to this bodybuilder. They'd started talking to the bodybuilder, something interrupted them. And when they turned around, Sean had started interviewing this guy. And it was like, we have got more permission. We're more powerful than you. And it came across in that particular way. And he was laughing, but it was kind of like elbowing and jostling going on. Peter McGough's got shoving and stuff like that. And as I said, if you go back with some of the Mr. Olympias that he competed in, when they started doing the uh, uh, press, stuff where the, the athletes are at the conference and you're talking to the press and talking to some of the VIPs coming across in a particular way and in a certain way in that sort of regards. And again, one of the things I think is funny, kind of funny because you're going to talk about stuff where the guys will sit in front of the Mercedes and Lamborghinis and the Ferraris, which they was all doing in the 90s and, and banging the drum about how much money they were making and whatever else. It wouldn't be like a sort of Tom Platt standing in front of the Corvette, which is a classic photograph. It would almost be, look at me, I'm a better athlete than you because I'm doing this kind of stuff. And it may well be that I'm seeing that stuff from that time was you guys are coming probably more around the 2000s, 2010s. So I've seen him as he was, and perhaps not as he is. And maybe on Instagram, he comes across in a better way. I don't see him on Instagram. I'm just thinking of the videos and stuff that come back in the day. I think it's one of those things where um, you and I, when we're doing this podcast, we're trying to lift the guys up. We're trying to educate and we're trying to inform and we're trying to say this is how you can stay safe, you can stay healthy, you can train and you can become a successful bodybuilder in your own right. And if you compete, we can help you can compete and so on and so forth. Sean doesn't, for me, and the stuff that I've seen, he's not necessarily trying to lift the guys up. The one and only example I can think of where he did that, which I've already mentioned, is where he says about filtering down some of that top cash. And it may well be that he's, he, he saw that as to his own benefit. Funny enough, as a good guy, He's done, they've, he's done a charity golf tournament 
and he talks about certain builder builders that were helping him with that and certain that were not. And at one point, they were able to hand over $55,000, I believe, to a children's charity. So there, there, there's bits and pieces. It's like when we talk about Flex Wheeler, we can say that Flex had certain issues, mental issues of his own. I was never a very confident guy. We could talk about Dorian, and we could say that he's always a bit stony-faced. For me, the cocky thing sometimes bordered on arrogance. Uh, you know, I have no issue with being a successful record-holding athlete myself in my own particular niche and saying, this is what I do, this is how good I am. But at the same time, you're not trying to be the big I am. You're not trying to come across too much of these kind of things. And I think sometimes Sean did that. He was a little bit edged over in that particular way. It may well be because of his background as a jock. You're, when you're at, I don't know about you, Steve, but when you're at school and you're successful at football, you're successful with athletics, you get all the girls. And in fact, um, he's just found out that he's got a daughter who's in her 30s and his brother's just found out something very similar from when he was 15. So the, the joys of being a jock, <laughs> including getting girls when you were a very young age, and in this particular case, only about two years ago, finding out that he'd, because uh, the video's two years old, um, become a dad and indeed a granddad as a result of a relationship, very brief relationship when he was 15 years of age. So the joys of being a jock. Sometimes, as you know, some of the athletes in your formative years, girls are throwing themselves at you, you're getting sponsors, you're getting contracts, and you're still in your teens. That can affect how you see people, see the sport, and so on and so forth. So yeah, there's an element of that for me. And again, yeah. I know him. It seems like he got, yeah, it seems like he got started with all this really, really young. And they do, yeah. and essentially these days, um, and a lot of the parents are to blame too. The parents get their kids involved in, in competitive sports at such a young age that there's a lot of pressure on these kids to perform both academically and yeah. athletically. Um, you know, you gotta, you gotta do it. You gotta get a scholarship. You gotta go to a division one school. So there's a lot of pressure, at least in the United States. I'm sure over there, it's the same way with soccer. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Very much you know, so. It's in hockey in other parts of Europe. Um, you got hockey players at 13, 14 years old, turning into um, semi-pro. And then by yeah. 17, 18, they turn pro, they get drafted into, into the AHL, NHL. So yeah, there's a lot of pressure. So, but yeah, and so if, I can see how it is. Yeah. And if you're successful at that age, when you haven't the mental maturity, the physical maturity to deal with that kind of stuff, if I'm give, if I if I say to you you're going to be a world class soccer player or a world class pro ball player when you're 18, 17, 18, and I'm going to put you on a 20 million dollar contract as soon as you finish college, and you're still what would you have been like at 18 with 20 million dollars coming to you? Yeah, it's that it's that kind of situation. So yeah, I think he's, he's, he's as he's matured as we all do. He's kind of grown into himself. For example, one of us says he's got two daughters that are both in show business. One of them's uh, accompanied some very, very famous singers. Another one's on TV and in in some kind of show. And the mother deals with it. And in fact, there was, it was a revealing interview that he probably knows that the way that he is, he would have maybe not be handling it quite as well as, as the mother was, his wife, in terms of looking after the girls and wanting them to succeed, et cetera, et cetera. Probably again, because he appreciates, you know, he's been a high ranking Olympian competitor. He's been an Arnold winner. He was a great jock at school, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe he appreciates and understands, you know, the way that he's been in the past. He certainly comes across better now. And that might just be a sign of maturity, being a, you know, 55-year-old man, as he is when we talk about this at the minute, and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, and, and I, I feel the same. I think as, as a father and a grandfather, you, you grow up 
and have to do certain particular things. So what he could have got away with when 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 he didn't know he had this this older daughter before the two girls that he's got now were born and how he could be and how it will, you know, it would have sold magazines versus how he is now as a father and a grandfather and, and, and a guy that's, you know, just one year younger than myself. Your attitude is going to be different 20 years later. And I said, I've known him following the sport since 1980. So we're talking about 40 years. So I'm probably getting those first 20 years when he's kicking ass, taking names and letting everybody know about it versus the more mature older man that he is now is out there looking at the, the I'm sure his Instagram page 20 years ago would have uh, 40 years ago would have been different than today. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. So let's get into his diet a little bit. I'll talk about his diet. Mobster has a cool thing about his training. And then of course, we're going to talk about his steroid use. We're going to talk about it for at least 20 minutes because that's what you guys really want to hear. But really quick on the, he even has videos out there. He's got pictures um, on his social media and what he eats. I'll give you an example. I mean, I'm looking at one of his videos right now. He's showing off his, his meal. He's got a salad with peas, green, green vegetables, spinach, cucumbers, tomatoes, shredded carrots, and eggs. And then his, uh, you know, coarse meal, really cookie cutter guys, vegetables, green vegetables, broccoli. It's a big hit with bodybuilders, uh, a potato, baked potato, and then a nice size, um, looks like a, to me, a T-bone steak, or it could be like a London broil that he's showing. So, and then uh, some kale with it. So guys, really, really simple diet. When you're, you know, that, that you have those types of genetics, that he has. I mean, think about it. When he was 15 years old, he was breaking high school records. I mean, as a freshman in, in, in high school, breaking records and clobbering seniors that are three, four years older than him. When you have that type of talent, really, you, you don't have to complicate things when it comes to diet. So, um, you know, really, really simple diet. Nothing really, there's nothing amazing about his diet. You know, he's, there's another one I see. He's got a, a filet, a filet fish. Looks like it was baked with some lemon on the side and some uh, greens, some dark greens. Again, not complicated at all, guys. I mean, if you guys eat like that every day, it's gonna be a healthy diet. It's gonna be a healthy diet. Combine that with your training, combine that with your steroid use, you'll get good results no matter how good or bad your genetics are. So I'll bring in Momster here. Tell us about his training and then we'll get into steroid talk. And as I said earlier on, Steve, it's got this uh, mentor by John Brown and John Brown was one of those guys that sometimes and there's a couple of other uh, faces in the sport that have done this thing. You, you go to them and you decide you want to be trained by them or, or they see some sort of potential and they kind of tested you. So they would put you through hell. And if you could if you could get through this hellish worker, if you could do this kind of crazy stuff they got you to do, then you were part of the gang. And so he was mentoring several athletes, including Sean around the same time and doing his crazy stuff. And indeed, uh, Sean talks about how he was having some back and forth when he was an, uh, a competitive athlete with Chris Cormier. But since then, they've become buddies. And there's an element of respect for the training. Now, one of the things he used to do is that he would have people occasionally train with him. And there's some videos from back in the day, probably uh, the late 90s, uh, full-length full videos you can find online of him training. And he would have guys come along and train with him. And he took a certain um, pleasure of their pain in terms of being able to bury them in the gym without being a monster in terms of the weights that have been lifted and whatever else. And in fact, in, in, in the research yesterday, he says that he says, there's guys there that they can outlift me on the deadlift. He says they could do 500, maybe 550, even 600 pounds. He says, but I will get as much out of 350 pounds of the sets, the reps and the volume as they will out of five or 600 pounds. And this is very true. If you look at his physique, you can see that he's put the work in. And indeed, the videos are quite 
educational. Uh, one of the things that would have come from John Brown was this idea of changing stuff up, doing things differently from time to time. Steve talks about the nutrition and I talked about the training in, in, in a bunch of other podcasts. And the key thing that we talk about is this idea of consistently getting better, consistently getting stronger, consistently putting the food in, in order to progress. And this is definitely where Sean is doing this 90% of the time, but every so often he'll throw in drop sets, he'll throw in force reps, he'll, he'll change the workout just for the sake of stimulating, just for the sake of having a, that, that, making that change and making it occur and making something the, the body respond, even if it goes back to a more consistent kind of training afterwards. So there's that. I think the other thing is, um, I think of something else which we'll touch upon, Steve, which comes back to training and nutrition, funnily enough. And we've talked about this in the pre-show. And he says that he was very much a guy that once he got past John Brown, who was a mentor, John was never a coach or what uh, Sean refers to as a guru. And he says he kind of he kind of says that the guys today are in too much of a rush because they've not learned via John how to train, and they haven't learned then what happens to themselves when they train. They haven't learned how they respond to certain foods, and what works and what doesn't work. And in fact, in 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 the uh, video that I saw, he even says that sometimes these people are so reliant on gurus that they're even asking whether they should date a certain person, and it's become kind of a, a point amusing point during during the video for him to say that he says once he had that base education off of john everything he did in the gym was down to him everything he did nutritionally was down to sean it wasn't someone there counting the calories for him wasn't someone there writing out programs everything he did in the gym in the kitchen and indeed as a competitive athlete was sean there was no manager there was no guru there was no trainer there was no coach you watch these videos and they're available online on YouTube, guys. You can see what he's doing. It's great form, great consistency, and it doesn't look easy. It's not huge 200-pound downs, but it doesn't look easy. So you can take nothing else away from him if you turn around and say he was a hard-training athlete because he was definitely that. And look at the results. You don't get to that kind of level of competition. Second place here, first place there, and never out of the top five or 30 competitions without being a fantastic athlete. And even with the genetic advantages, even with his ability as a jock at school and later on college slash university, he put the work in. These are not easy workouts. I wouldn't want to train with him, Steve. He, he's, he would destroy me with the volume. I might be able to put up a few more kilos on the bar, a few more pounds on the bar, but I think this guy would annihilate me if I tried to do one of his workouts, just, just a back workout or whatever else. We're talking about multiple sets, drop sets, force reps, squeezing them also incredibly hard, the stuff that I recall. I'd be very surprised if a few of our listeners could handle him at his best back in the day, Steve. Yeah, definitely. I think I would be um, have a hard time walking the next day getting out of bed. So that would be <laughs> yeah. a tough workout. Yeah, yeah, for sure. He'd be sore. So we talk about his steroids, guys. Let's talk about it. So before we kind of get into – you know, we could start speculating on a steroid cycles. You know, let's talk about what happened. Uh, 1990, yeah. um, the second Arnold Classic. Uh, it was a con- very controversial. And there was an interview that he did. He sat down with Mike Ashley. And Mike Ashley was the one who ended up getting awarded the win because Sean Ray had failed a drug test. So they yeah. sat down and they kind of talked together. It was kind of interesting to see them talk together. And I know Mobster wants to talk about it. I'll bring him in shortly. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and what's kind of screwed up on this was, you know, I, 
it's hard for me to believe these other guys also weren't using oh come on stuff so why did he get singled out it's kind of it's kind of weird that that happened i'll let mobster talk about that and the weird thing is too seven days later he was celebrating his victory and he was having dinner with arnold and he was soaking in his title win and that's when he found out that he had failed the test so that's kind of interesting because I know in, in, in professional sports, they can't test everybody. They don't test everybody. And certain players feel like, you know, I'm getting singled out. Why am I getting singled out? Why am I getting tested two weeks in a row while most people on my team haven't even been tested all year? So this could be a situation where they kind of singled him out. It could have been a situation where mm-hmm. he screwed up and didn't run the correct esters where he took the test and he still had esters in the system. It could be a situation where it was a, a political thing where they didn't like him. Um, so, you know, who knows what happened, but I'll bring him off to talk a little bit about that. And then we're going to kind of go over what we think he used. Right, so what we're, I, I think we're looking at a few things here. I think that more specifically it was a diuretic issue rather than, than a steroid issue, but certainly steroids, et cetera, would have been tested for. And everybody knew that they were going to be tested. There's a bunch of issues here. First and foremost, as I've addressed earlier on, perhaps he'd ruffled some feathers. So therefore you get into the political stuff. Did Was he a light guy as a competitive athlete? Probably not. Uh, outside of the sport and, and as a pundit and doing the stuff on ESPN, yeah, fine. But on the stage, perhaps not. Uh, and so there's that particular issue. Something Steve and I talked about in a pre-show was that there was a suggestion around that time that Jay Cutler had also failed the test and was quite prepared to sue the IFBB. Now the IFBB in their rules and regulations, specifically in their rules and regulations, never mind the pro division, because of course all that's split apart now, but back in the day it was all one big happy organization, specifically talked about being drug free, and yet they wasn't doing drug tests. Now this is a difficult problem for the low level competitions where especially back in the day, the entry fees wouldn't cover the cost of just testing the top three athletes and would have been an additional cost that perhaps promoters didn't want to absorb. And yet there it was in the regulations. He talks about in an interview, again, this is part of the pre-show research. He says that the when Jay was talking about suing the IPB but not doing what their own rules and regulations said that they had to do in their constitution, he also talks about how the samples that the guys had given were left unattended backstage. So they wasn't following proper procedure, so therefore they could have been tampered with. And as Steve says, I believe he had to hand back $90,000. And then the next next year, Steve, he came in and kicked ass and won. And also around the same time that this drug test came out, I think it was within a year or two, that the WBF, the very short-lived WBF did drug testing, and here's what happens, Steve. It's quite simple. The guys look like shit. With the directs killing people, because Mohamed Benetzia and, 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 and Andreas Munzer dying, there was a combination of steroid use in Andreas' case, but specifically uh, diuretics in uh, Mohamed's case. The, the idea of the drug testing made sense, and, but commercially, it just wasn't worth it. The guys came in, they looked soft, they looked off, no one was in the condition that they'd been in before. And the next year, when the drug testing was quietly dropped, the guys looked amazing. 
he, he as, as a Arnold winner in 91, he was pretty damn good. So it's one of those things where it's, it's nice to be seen to practice what you're supposed to be doing. But in reality, it, 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 it was probably hitting the purse strings. It was probably hitting the promoter's pockets. It was probably hitting the sponsor's pockets. It certainly, you know, you weren't going to put those, no one was putting out those pictures when the guys were soft. So you've got all of that going on. And, and the organizations that stood have been doing these things never did them properly. As, a, as an aside, Steve, let me give you an, an illustration of how this is supposed to work. We've got natural organizations on both sides of the pond, both in America and in the UK. And indeed, even in my niche sport of grip strength, there's an organization based in Europe that's talking a couple of years ago about testing the athletes and I called bullshit. And in fact, I had a bit of back and forth with one of the organizers. And I said, it's quite simple guys. The fees that you're charging to compete in your shows would barely cover the trophy, t-shirt and, and location cost. And yet you're supposed to take the money out of that and put it towards drug tests. Now in a lot of natural competition, the drug test consists of peeing in a cup. And if you follow IOC and weight of things, you're spoken about taking the first, if, if it's always, there's a race or an, an event in the Olympics, the first three places automatically tested just at that event. Then of course, you've got the cost of testing them through the year in random tests. So for the organizations that I'm talking about, I goes, okay, guys, it's costing you somewhere between 115 to 125 pounds to do waiter or IOC spec blood test, not urine test, to find out if these guys are taking drugs and you haven't got the money. If you haven't got the money, you're not doing the test. So you're only on paper, you're saying you're going to do the test, but you're not. You might do one or two tests a year and someone else, a sponsor's probably going to have to pay for that. So it ends up being one of those things where it's a nice idea in principle. And there's a lot of athletes, including Sean, probably back in the day that said, if everybody was tested, it'd be great. And we don't, none of us would ever have to take steroids again. Sean would still have been a great bodybuilder. He just had that kind of physique. But they can't afford it. So it becomes bullshit. And it becomes a waste of time. So then it comes to critical. Then they're not doing the test properly. And then the test of quality drops. And the athlete's going back to looking amazing, looking freaky, looking conditioned. And Sean, of course, comes back the following year after failing the test. And I believe the year that he won, he picked up $100,000 versus the $90,000 he'd had to hand back. And it's in his particular case, it didn't seem to do his career any harm, probably because everybody else was an uproar and what was going on at the time, et cetera, et cetera. I think the organisations had to show that they were doing something because we didn't want guys dying on stage. And you and I addressed it when we talked about Paul Dillette with Direct, and we'd already had two deaths in the sport, but really it it, it, it wasn't good with the sport in terms of commercialization, sponsorship, the condition of the guys, how they appeared on stage and whatever else. And I think we understand and appreciate via the forums, if we can advise them to do it safely, don't do crazy shit, don't do DMP, don't do insulin. Uh, if you are gonna do Direct, follow the advice, and there is safe ways to do these things, but we're not talking about guys that are picking up or having that. I certainly wouldn't want to hand back $90,000 of my cash. And maybe like Jay Cutler, I'd be tempted to go to court, Steve. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff. You guys, should, you should look into this for yourself for the podcast that we've given you this information. Don't take our word for it. Go online, look at the history of the sport. I'm reading the history of the sport upstairs right now and what's gone in in the past and how these things have come to 
be where they are today. Steve. I think I think today being able to monetize something like that happening to you would actually benefit you. But 1990, losing that much money, that hurts. That's a lot of money in those days. You're not going to be able to make it back. And it hurts you in those days. But now you could come on, make some videos, whine, complain about it, set up a GoFundMe page. <laughs> you'll have people sending you $5, $10. You'll have tens of thousands of people sending you $5. You'll make all the money back. So it's like things have changed now. But yeah, back then that hurt to lose that. Kind oh, of for money. sure. We know, we know, of course, because we've mentioned him just recently, Boston Lloyd made kind of a name for himself and probably made of several bucks, say the, to say the least, at this idea of doing the crazy amount of stuff that he's done. Rich Piana, the, the followers that this guy had when he was alive, just on the steroid and the PED information that he was putting out, sometimes, as you and I know, because we know what he spoke about, sometimes accurate, sometimes not accurate, but a lot of his reputation was made on the idea of him giving out this kind of information. And indeed, here we are, you know, supporting supporting the forum, et cetera, and 90% and of what we do on the forum is telling guys how to do this kind of stuff. So, you know, let's not knock it. But what is this thing, it's this idea that, that there was this, like I said, that back then, and even now people still discuss this, but back then the society that somehow they were fixing something. And in fact, that never happened. Uh, and again, for all the things that we could talk about with Rich and with Boston and whatever else, we haven't heard of anybody saying, oh, my God, Boston's gone too far. Let's change the sport. Rich Piana went too far. Let's change the sport. So, you know, and, and, and the joke of it is, Steve, as you well know, when we talk about bodybuilders taking stories, it's not like they're the only athletes using drugs. It's, it's absolutely farcical. Just imagine that. How are these sports where two to three hundred million dollars are on the line or in the UK, hundreds of millions of pounds are on the line? tell me that the guys aren't using drugs to get through things, that they're not using drugs just to recover from injuries. And again, cycle racing, Tour de France stuff, where the guys that got caught, Lance Armstrong, versus the idea that every single fucking team is not doing something. You're not riding for 150 miles in four miles, four hours or whatever the hell it is, and up and down these mountains with changes of elevation, and the sheer pain and God knows what these guys are going through when they were they were mucking about with blood plasma and and, and a, a bunch of <laughs> just bodybuilders are just the the most obvious example of drug users. Pretty much every sport we know. Hell, when you've got dart players or snooker players taking beta blockers, you're talking about the easiest, calm, less aggressive sports you can imagine, and they're still taking drugs to be successful. You've got kids taking drugs to be just to get through the exams at school. So it, it, it ends up being a kind of silly conversation. All that we want when we do this podcast is to give out information that keeps you safe, keeps you healthy, keeps you around for a long time so that you can give out information like we're giving when you're 20, 30 years in the game. So that's how this got it. This idea that bodybuilders are the only ones doing stupid shit is just, it's just ridiculous. Steve? Yeah, it's funny in professional sports, at least in the United States, you don't hear... Uh, anymore um you don't hear about the big time athletes getting busted for steroid use you always hear about some third string fourth string guy so it's like they want to make an example yeah. but they don't want to rustle they don't want to bust patrick mahomes or tom brady for using steroids or using hgh no they would never do that they make they're the ones that make all the money they're the ones the nfl needs them but you'll see some third fourth string guy who's barely plays 
those are the ones that they'll make an example of. So I think that's that's fascinating. And uh, yeah, Mops are really quick, and we have to get into this. I'm just going to say one more thing. So if I was a Tom Brady or an athlete of that level, and if I was a, one of the highest players athletes in my sport, I would be sensible. First off, you've got to remember, guys, genetic advantage, training, et cetera, et cetera. Let's never take anything away from these guys putting in the hours, the years, the months, everything of graft. That, 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 that happens from day one, from when they're kids to becoming the top athletes that they are. However, if you're paying me $100 million a year, I'm telling you that I would employ someone to make sure I keep myself on the right side of the rules and regulations, whether that's with masking agents, whether that's with you short acting testers, doing all the things that need to be done, whether it's just growth hormone for tissue repair, I would have someone on my team. We talked about this when we talked about MMA in previous podcasts, Steve. I would have someone on my team to cook. I would have someone on my team to train me. And I would have someone on my team who needs to be as close to an expert as it's possible to be in this particular regards. Ultimately, it's me, my responsibility. But I would have someone saying, right, this is what we can do. You can put this in, you can take this out and so on. Not a guru, but someone to, to make sure that I stay on the right side of the rules and regulations to play the game, so to speak. And as you say quite properly, when you get to that particular point where this guy's going to be at the Super Bowl or whatever, the, the, the highest place they can be in their sport, sometimes one has to think there's a certain commercial aspect to it. So if he's a, if he's a mediocre player, oh no, he got caught. But if it's a top player on a top team and we're talking about the Super Bowl of whatever sport you happen to be in, what a surprise. We're not hearing about guys filing drug tests the day before that particular game, are we? So yeah. Look at it with a, a, a jaundiced point of view, guys. Think how it might be, be being said and what's being done. Back to you, yeah. So we have less than 10 minutes left, guys. So we talked a little bit about steroids, masking agents, how he got busted. But let's talk about specifics. Let's talk about specifically what we think he, he ran. And I'll bring in Mobster to finish up the, the show the last couple of minutes with his final thoughts. So we think, we think around you know, the 90s, we think that they were going with the HGH. Uh, we, we're going to guess maybe eight IUs a day. With the HGH, of course, it would go higher in certain periods, and it would drop down in certain periods. Trembolone, we think in the 90s, Trembolone was was really, really a big, big scene. We think late in the 80s, early 90s, you had Parabolin around the Trembolone, guys, that was the weapon. That's what made these, these bodybuilders in the 90s go from being more smaller to being huge. The HGH and the Trembolone, those two together. We think he probably ran, they say, 750 milligrams a week. That's a big, big dose. That's twice the doses as, as I've ever ran a week. And that did a lot for me. So I can't imagine running twice that dose. But that's not all. We also think around this time, too, they were running lots of testosterone. They did not run testosterone in the 70s and in, in, in early and mid-80s. We did not. There's no AIs. There's no way to block that estrogen from aromatizing. But in the 90s, they started getting, uh, you know, they started using Novodex on cycle. AI started coming around toward the mid to late 90s. And so we think he probably ran a gram of testosterone and he was able to get away with it without getting water retention problems. And of course, he probably cut it off once he got closer to his competitions or when he needed to cut down. Primobolin. Primobolin was one of his, his kind of a bridge steroid in the 90s. In the 60s, you know, 70s and 80s, they loved Primobolin. Absolutely loved it, especially in the 70s, in the early 80s. Then as we get into the 90s, these guys, you know, they're they're following old school protocols. So we think they still were messing around with Prima Bowl at a gram a week. Now they're like, ah, Prima Bowl, and we don't really need it. Let's run more trend instead. Let's run EQ instead. So things have changed a little bit when it comes to Prima Bowl. But I think in the 90s, 
I figured, especially early, in the early part of the decade, he was probably running more Prima Bowling than toward the end. Maybe he was running a little more Tremble and he kind of switched it up a little bit. And then Anavar and Winstrol, those are cutting orals. We think the Anavar, he ran close to 100 milligrams a day. Same thing with the Winstrol, probably three quarters of 100 milligrams a day, 75 milligrams total a day to cut him down, to dry him out. So those are really, really good options. We don't think these guys in the 90s really mess around with Masterin too much, but now, especially in the 2000s and the 2010s, that's when Masterin really became a popular steroid with competitors when it comes to hardening up. So we think that Masteron really um, came in over the past 15, 20 years versus the 90s. They may, maybe, you know, Masteron wasn't really around, but maybe, maybe he messed with it. We don't really... I don't know. It's it's hard to know. If he didn't mess, mess with Masteron, it would be Masteron propanate. I don't even think Masteron anything was available back then. It, it's never been a pharmacy grade. Uh, they never have uh, have had a pharmacy grade Masteron that was in anything form. Now you can buy uh, Masteron anything, no problem from any source because it's all mostly underground or kind of, um, you know, semi-pharmacy grade, not technically pharmacy grade. So I think that was interesting. And, you know, um, yeah, what do you think of Mobster bringing you this? Do you think maybe Proviron, do you think they messed around with Proviron in the 90s or do you think that was maybe overkill? What, what else do you think he, he could have I used? think in terms of Sean's physique and how Sean looked, he was never, uh, uh, as you said, even at 225 pounds, with you know, a bunch of guys that are within one or two inches of his height that are around that kind of look. And shit, Sean's look was extremely competitive and very well put together. I think the the what we would call the uh, cosmetic versions, which includes Anavar and Winston in terms of drying out, and as you say, Masteron, et cetera, et cetera, this idea of drying yourself there. And of course, and as, as we mentioned earlier on in the podcast, which is not mentioned in the cycle here, but for competition would have been extremely important. And probably what was being abused, and of course what helped him fail the test, would have been a diuretic or two. Uh, and so because the physique that he presented and how he came across on stage, he would have been cut even if he was up against someone like Dorian, and there are photographs of these two athletes together on stage, Dorian, as good a gnarly kind of rock-hard condition that Dorian got in, when you see the condition of Sean next to him, I'm going to say that, you know, body fat levels are, are, are lower, aesthetics are different. There's a lot of guys out there would love Sean's physique versus sort of a freaky-looking Dorian and other athletes of that time. I'm going to say diuretics, lots of cosmetic drugs, Maybe the, as you say, the test infinite and recipient and, and other drugs being run and then taken out close to the competition and then all the, the short acting stuff being brought in for competition, 100%. But yeah, possibly, and it might not have just been Sean, it might have been of his time where the guys were experimenting perhaps with abuse, hence the issues that came with diuretics, hence the guys dying and, and, and making these kind of cock ups. And also, something around that time, Steve maybe a little bit towards the end of Sean's time on stage, which is what we started to hear about the DNP and the Nube. It was just towards the end of his career. I'm not saying it's something that I thought Sean would have used, but it was the kind of stuff that was starting to be experimented about. We're talking about, for example, again, Dan Duquesne as a steroid guru and other steroid gurus just started to come in towards the end of Sean's career. So I think it was the guys were starting to push their luck. Uh, and the directs for me, is something that they were pushing in terms of what to take and how much and failing the test, et cetera, et cetera. You start, you learn from, 
even with Shaw, you can learn from his mistake if you're another professional competitive bodybuilder. Okay, so what did he do? When did he take it? How did he look on stage? How did they look from one year to the next and so on and so forth? Uh, this is where the study of the history of the sport has its advantages. And that's just as much as in performance enhancing drugs as it is in training and nutrition and how to be a professional athlete. Look at what mistakes people have made, learn from them. And then, of course, like you and I, giving out the advice that we hopefully is going to help people. So, yeah, don't fail the drug test if there is one. Don't do stupid drugs if you're going to have a drug test. And don't overdo diuretics, et cetera, et cetera. I think in his particular case, there's probably more to it than meets the eye. Uh, and in terms of his physique, I, I don't necessarily like him as a person, but on stage, cut, in shape, great posing, a very professional athlete in his attitude, few mistakes here and there. So, uh, yeah, uh, maybe maybe the trend, you said before, maybe the trend made him arrogant for me back in the 80s and 90s. Maybe, as what is it you've called it before, Steve, the relationship? destroyer is this you know can you <laughs> what got, what do we know that some guys talk about online when they're on trend and how they come across maybe that was maybe when maybe when i saw him doing his stuff maybe he was on trend maybe that's what made him a bit in my opinion an asshole <laughs> yeah maybe I've, yeah. I've never i've never used it can you imagine me on trend steve come on <laughs> man I, I i'm yeah and i think on trend i think you would you would love it. What would, I be like, what would I be like in the forum, Steve? What would I be like when I'm typing replies on trend? Listen up, motherfuckers. <laughs> you can probably go back on my uh, my post on the forum and tell, yeah, Steve was on trend. Uh, this was the eight weeks he was on trend right here. And then these were the eight weeks. Three yeah. word answers. One of them included the word. Let begin with the letter S. Exactly. <laughs> can you imagine? So, yeah, yep. there's another thing for you guys. Yeah. All right, guys, well, we're at our time limit, guys. So, guys, you know, listen, we do these podcasts. Uh, we do a lot of talking about these steroid use. So, but we'd like to hear your opinion. What do you guys think he used? What do you think the guys in the 90s used uh, during this time? Come on the forums and let us know, guys. It's all it's all fun, you know, um, so, so it's all speculation. Let's have, some feedback. Yeah. Yep. let's have some feedback. Do you think he was a nice guy? Did he come across bad to you? Or was he just a great athlete and sometimes being a great athlete, you know? Your ego gets away. Is this, let us know. Give us some thoughts in the, in the, in, the, in your comments, guys. Thank you. For Steve Smee and the Mobsters, this has been another hardcore episode. Sean Ray. We'll talk to you guys next week, guys. We're going to have another person, and we're not going to tell you who it is. It's going to be a secret, so you're going to have to wait to find out. Take care, guys. Got up.